0: You are listening to Reach MD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. We cage animals to keep them safe from us and us from them. What if we caged transplanted cells to keep them safe from our immune system and vice versa? Welcome to the Clinicians Roundtable. I'm your host, attorney and doctor Bruce Bloom, president and chief science officer of Partnership for Cures, a nonprofit that drives cures to patients through repurposing generic drugs for new uses. And with me is Dr. Barjor Gimme, Assistant Professor, Department of Radiology, the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center at Dallas, and the Department of Radiology and Radiological Science the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Dr. Gimme is a Partnership for Cures pilot grant recipient. Dr. Gimme and I are discussing his research focused on encapsulated cell-based therapies and how they compare to other therapies and what others are doing in the field. Dr. give Gimme, welcome um, to ReachMD.
1: Thank you very much for having me on, Dr. Bloom.
0: So tell us what cell-based therapy
1: is all about. Well, the term cell therapy refers to the transplantation of cells that can either secrete therapeutic molecules or that can regenerate tissue. So, for instance, a hormone deficiency can be treated by transplanting cells that secrete that particular hormone. And there are also indirect ways to use cell therapy where they do not actively secrete the therapeutic molecules, but rather they secrete growth or inhibition factors but then elicit a desirable response from the host.
0: So what we're really talking about is replacing what's defective in my body with something that's working in some other person or some other animal, putting it in there and letting it take that job function over. And why are researchers interested in cell-based therapies versus other therapies? So if I have a hormone deficiency, why don't I just take an injection or a pill or transdermal or nasal. What's better about cell therapy?
1: Well, with injections and pills, you essentially have to stick to a very strict regimen. You have to take it in specific doses and at specific time intervals, and you have to have access to it all the time. Whereas with cell therapy, the cells secrete these hormones in response to the body's needs and the body's levels of other molecules and hormones. And so it's a more physiological alternative to taking insulin injections, for instance, in diabetes.
0: Is there also an advantage to needing it at a specific time? So sometimes if I have a drug like insulin, I'll take it and my body's really not needing that much of it, but that's how much I inject, and then I have to deal with the consequences later. What would be better about cell-based therapy?
1: Well, that's exactly right. So the cells would fine-tune that for you automatically. They would sense blood glucose levels and then secrete insulin in response to that. And not just the amount of insulin secreted, but also the time response would be very accurate as opposed to taking an injection. What
0: other diseases besides diabetes would be susceptible to a cell therapy?
1: Clearly, any disease that has hormone deficiency, such as Parkinson's, hemophilia, and others. But there are, there are many applications for this, and including, say, putting in hepatocytes for liver failure. And we're also exploring applications in cancer now. So we're talking about therapies where we're secreting useful biomolecules into the body, but it may also be beneficial to secrete harmful biomolecules, for instance, antitumor toxins. So if you have these cells localized within tumor and secreting antitumor toxins, then that's a very desirable therapy approach.
0: Under what circumstances do you need to encapsulate those cells versus just injecting them right in?
1: You want to protect the cells from the host's immune system, unless they're the host's cells. So sometimes we remove cells from the patient and readminister them. But typically, the idea of performing cell therapy is that there is a shortage of organ donors or of donor sources, I should say. And so for, for that purpose, you would need to encapsulate them for immunoisolation or for immunoprotection. You also want to encapsulate them to protect them from shear forces that they experience during transplantation. So, so there are myriad reasons to encapsulate these. And
0: what are some of the current impediments to cell therapy or encapsulated cell therapy?
1: There, There are one or two approaches you can use. You can use a polymer approach, polymer encapsulation, where you do not have precise control over pore size, unfortunately. There's a wide distribution of pore sizes, and so it is entirely possible, if not for macrophages, at least for large immune complements, to penetrate into the device and to kill the cells that were intended for therapy. The other approach is to use biocapsules that have very precise control over pore size because the membranes are nanofabricated, but these biocapsules are fairly large, and so the cells that are encapsulated within them suffer from nutrient and oxygen deprivation and eventually do not remain viable for very long.
0: And when you say they're big, tell us how big, relatively speaking, how, what size are they? Size of a baseball, size of a... Yeah,
1: we're talking several millimeters to a centimeter, Below that size, typically it's very difficult to manipulate these devices, which is why that has been the size limitation to date.
0: So they might be the size of a pea or bigger, something like that? That is correct. And even at that size, you're saying the cells on the inside of the cell mass die. Why is that?
1: They just do not get sufficient oxygen.
0: And what size do they have to be in order for all the cells within a a capsule to get the oxygen?
1: Well, if they're around 300 microns in dimension, then I think the cells at the core are sufficiently oxygenated.
0: You're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Bloom, and I am speaking with Dr. Gimme, assistant professor at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center at Dallas, about his encapsulated cell-based therapy research. So if we need to get the capsules That small, 300 microns. How do we do that?
1: The way we started doing this was we made two-dimensional structures that were porous. And this is easy to do using computer chip technology. But essentially, computer chip technology is a two-dimensional wafer scale technology, And so we made two-dimensional structures, and then to convert those into 3D structures, we put hinges on them, and we melted the hinges. So when the hinges melted, the surface tension just forced this two-dimensional structure to collapse into a 3D encapsulation device.
0: And what shape are these devices? Are Are they round? Are they polyhedrons? Are they cubes? What are they?
1: They're cubes. They're about 200 to 300 micron cubes, and we're now exploring the possibility of making spherical structures as well. And
0: how do you get the cells inside?
1: That was one of the drawbacks of using a self-assembly approach. And so the approach we're using now is to create a device which has one side open. So it is a cage-like device with the top open then we load the cells in from the top, and then we place a lid on it.
0: And how do you get the lid to stick? Do you have little welders that go around at the nanometer size and, and do little nano welds?
1: We have what we called feature-based self-assembly now. So based on geometry and features, we get these lids to assemble in the hundreds onto several of these devices.
0: And what kind of cells are you putting inside? What are you testing right now?
1: Our principal application is to encapsulate pancreatic islets for diabetes therapy insulin-secreting cells.
0: And where do you get those from, a donor, from the patient themselves?
1: From mice and from cadaveric donors.
0: If this device works, will there be enough donor islets in order to supply what we need for all the type 1 diabetics?
1: There's a huge shortage of donor islets in terms of human donors, so cadaveric donors. But indeed, the hope is that there'll be more than enough from animal donors, and and that is one of the driving forces for this sort of therapy.
0: So if this therapy works, we could put pig islets or mouse islets or anything that would respond to human glucose inside these, and the immune system wouldn't be able to get to that xenograft. Exactly right. What other diseases are you working on? or What are you looking forward to working on?
1: We're certainly exploring applications in cancer. And we've already started a little bit. We've started looking into this a little bit. In cancer, you have certain bacteria and certain cells that secrete antitumor toxins. And this may be a very attractive way of attacking a tumor and not doing it at one specific time point, but to do it over time by having these cells that keep secreting these antitumor toxins.
0: So, who else around the country is working on these kinds of things? What other institutions are working on encapsulated cell based therapies?
1: In terms of the biocapsules, large biocapsules were first developed at Berkeley and then by several groups around the country after that. Anybody using them to do clinical research yet? No, but the large biocapsules have been used in animal models. They've shown some early promise in restoring insulin independence, but they have several problems in their approach, which is essentially the cells inside these biocapsules they don't remain viable for long. They starve to death.
0: So they can't get vasculature in there because the pore size is so small that it keeps the immune system out. It also keeps the, the vasculature out?
1: Yes, it also keeps the vasculature out, but the capsules are so large that just the diffusion of oxygen and nutrients inside it does not sufficiently nourish the cells.
0: And when those cells on the inside die, do the necrotic cells have an impact on the other cells inside the capsule?
1: The necrotic core just starts to grow over time, yes.
0: And eventually, do we expect those capsules to become non-viable? That is correct.
1: Or or certainly not enough viable cells in it to have any kind of restorative, curative effect.
0: And what would be different about these little nano cubes that you're making?
1: They're so small that oxygen can very easily diffuse to all of the cells that are encapsulated in them. And the other advantage of that is we can administer these at any site of interest in the body, such as an immune privilege site, which you cannot do with large biocapsules. Large biocapsules are sutured into the peritoneal cavity, which is very deprived of vasculature, oxygen, nutrients, and so on.
0: You're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on Reach MD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Bloom, and I am speaking with Dr. Barjor Gimme, assistant professor at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center at Dallas, about his encapsulated cell-based therapy research. Tell us what an immune-privileged site might be.
1: The liver, maybe one.
0: Do we also think we could inject these into the brain or to the spinal column and have them survive there?
1: We've toyed with this idea quite a bit, and my wife deals with developmental disabilities, and so we've talked about having scaffolds and having neural cells regenerate and so on, but I have to say we haven't pursued that yet.
0: And for something like Parkinson's, which is missing a molecule in order for those people to be disease-free. Is that something that this kind of a capsule might work?
1: Yes. In fact, this is something we spoke about very early on when I was thinking about this project is to have dopaminergic cells encapsulated for Parkinson's and and other diseases. So you're right. This could be used in the spinal column and in the brain.
0: If I was a diabetic, how many of these little nano cages would you expect me to have throughout my body regulating my insulin?
1: Each one of these nano cages is designed at the moment to encapsulate one islet. So for to restore insulin independence in a mouse, you would need several hundred. And in a human, you would need on the order of hundreds of thousands. So this is very much a large-scale process.
0: When we ramp this up, though, we believe that we could create 100,000 of these encapsulations fairly easily and inject them into the body?
1: Correct. So in our developmental phase right now, we're doing a few of these at a time. But we have a process in place now to start doing several hundred at a time. Once you start doing several hundred at a time, it isn't much of a leap at all to go to thousands or tens of thousands because at that point you're using a different fabrication approach, you're using a parallel approach.
0: I want to thank Dr. Barjor Gimi of UT Southwestern Medical Center for sharing his encapsulated cell therapy research with us. I am attorney and Dr. Bruce Bloom, president and chief science officer of Partnership for Cures, a nonprofit that drives cures to patients to repurposing generic drugs and other therapies for new uses. You have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.